0: you, thank you, thank you. Uh, what a joy to be able to have folks who can step in and lead and to be able to take us into the presence of God and even to elicit from us some joy to think, what was it like for Lazarus when his name was called and he came running out of that grave? Uh, there's a sense in which, you know, that was not a boring moment. That was not something dull. And uh, with God, all things are possible. Uh, as you come to New Covenant Church, I always put up the word cloud because I'm going to remind you that we are a Bible-believing church. We're unashamed of that. Uh, we know, just like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the testimony of Jesus Christ uh, and the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So we are unashamedly excited about the Bible. We want to open it. We want to know it. We want you to know it. And that's why we provide Bible. studies and different opportunities for you to know the truth and by the way it's not just pulling our ignorance about the bible no we believe that god revealed what we need to know in the bible and that is why we as i open up the text today it is because of the inspired and uh, inerrant and uh, infallible nature uh, of the originals that these scriptures are the truth if you get offended at what's in scripture i actually would say that's great I would rather you be offended at what God has said rather than what this preacher has said. Uh, but I want to be found faithfully telling you what God has said. and that's what the, what we're supposed to do in expository preaching. expose what's already there, not read into it the things that I'd like to be able to say. So this is God's word, and let us read it in the originals. Uh, if you have your Bibles open, you can follow along. I'll be looking at the verses. They're found on the fourth point supplement on the back. Uh, they'll probably be behind me or they're in your in the scriptures themselves. In Ecclesiastes chapter two verse twenty four, uh, the the uh, old, proverb writer named Solomon, he's a grandfather now, and when he writes Ecclesiastes, and he says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil or his work, his labor. He says, there's nothing better. This is the satisfaction of a life. And then he goes on to say, this also I saw is from the hand of God. It's not just an old man's wisdom. This is what God designed, and Solomon is passing that on in his his maturity. He says, yeah, this is what God wants you to know. Now, if you go to chapter 5, verse 2 of Ecclesiastes, he cautions people. He says, be not rash with your mouth. That's probably good counsel for anybody. I think James picks that up. Be careful with little mouth what you say. He says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in the heaven... For God is in heaven and you are on earth; therefore, let your words be few. In other words, don't question God. You should embrace what He has revealed. Uh, the, in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, this is one my dad, as one, and my pastor for all those years, ended up bringing forward. Uh, but the one who did not know and did not and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. He never focused on that part. But after every report card, we got the second part. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Yeah, we always got that text when when the report cards came and if they were good grades, he would say that you better keep it up. You know, to whom much is given, much is expected. Uh, But I want to add today these two extra verses from Mark 8 and also from Isaiah. So in Mark 8, 37, it is particularly special to me as it's one of the verses the Holy Spirit used to to, uh, give me a call to ministry. For what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Or as as the ESV says, what can a man give in return for his soul? It's a question. In Isaiah 53, there is the answer... All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You're there, you'll see in that particular text a great exchange that took place. So let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, take the reading of the word and especially the preaching and making, make it an effectual means of salvation to introduce some of us to Christ that don't know you already and to strengthen us in maturity. Move us from, from elementary... Uh, From elementary milk to the meat of the strong word, we pray that you will grow us up in the faith, that we'll be equipped to do whatever you've called us to do while we occupy until you come. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I wanted to thank my uh, Billy for helping me out. I brought a prop today. Uh, Any of you know what it is? It's a bag. Okay. It's a bad rap job. I think it's, you'll see it's a, it's a talking point in our culture. It's a gallon of gas. Although, actually, I didn't put it in there because I know the fumes could get to us all. Um, but what is the value of a gallon of gas? $10, <laughs> $10. We have, you have you have this one, man, <laughs> for 10 bucks. Uh, we, ha- we heard over here four seventy-five. 75 479. We hear 479. What will be tomorrow? (laughs) Now, there's a little bit of humor, but I think most of you have had the opposite effect as you drive down the streets. uh, Tracy and I have had the uh, responsibility, privilege, or however you look at it. We've been making a few trips as we dropped off Hannah and Christian down in southern Virginia, and uh, as we drove back, you know, the gas prices in Virginia are lower. When you look at those signs, it was like. we had 422. I mean it was awesome! 422 a gallon. <laughs> and I got home and I'm like, we're in southern Delaware. And I looked and I said, This is awful. Almost five dollars a gallon. I've been talking about the economy today. This is on the agenda and it's been there for more than two months. So this is what the Lord would have us talk about. What do we learn about the the, the value of a gallon of gasoline? Hey, I think as Christians, I can say that this, the value of that, that, that gallon of gas has an effect on all kinds of things. And if I ask, if I ask you, just by your laughter and even by your quick response, uh, it has changed some of the things, some of the way you do things. It hasn't all curtailed it all, but you're obviously thinking differently. They have, they have, in effect, caused a lot of change. Is there anybody that's not affected by this? Yes, there are a few. There's a few that don't care what the cost of the gallon of gas is. I mean, because if we were in a church in California right now, we would not be talking about $5 a gallon of gas. It was $5 years ago. You know, now we're talking about 7 or 8 or maybe the $10. Similar to the situation of God's people in Genesis 47. No. Put your thinking caps on back in Genesis 47. What, what happened in Genesis 47? Well, the economy had gone bad and the people of God were suffering. This was in the time of the days when uh, Jacob had 12 sons and they were living in Canaan. And uh, there was about 75 of them and they were living in the Canaan region. And let me tell you, it was, it was really bad. It wasn't a shortage of gasoline because they didn't have gas-powered cars then. It was a shortage of rain. And because there wasn't any rain, it led to a food shortage, which we might experience soon too. Okay, with the food shortage, guess what happened to the value of things? Things that used to be so precious and treasured ended up being, you'd, you were willing to exchange those just so that you could get food. And if you listen to the story, the hunt for food was on. And, and uh, Jacob's 12 sons, actually there were only 11 there because Joseph had been sold into slavery, they were so hungry. And they were trying to figure out. They couldn't turn on CNN, and they couldn't go to their Internet and say, Hey, Siri, where is their food? But the rumor was that there was food in Egypt. And so guess what happened? They said, Then let's go get it. No matter what the cost, let's go get some food. And that's where you get the story in Genesis 47, where Joseph's brothers end up coming to to Egypt because of the economy. They couldn't stay where they were because that would be a death sentence. So the, the hunt for food led them to a willingness to exchange almost anything for food. Wow. Well, when you get to where you can't have your needs met, the other things will grow strangely dim in significance. Just like when you're thirsty, just to be able to get a drop of cold water. That was the illustration that Jesus used of the rich man and, and the... Uh, the, and the and and Lazarus, the poor man, who were in that uh, special place in the story that Jesus told about they died and and the one in hell just wanted a drop of cold water. Back in in Genesis 47, eventually you find that Joseph's brothers are willing to offer everything, including, get this, themselves in slavery. Some people may say slavery is so bad. It is so wicked. But that's one of the things that people have, the ability to produce. And they yield their ability to produce to somebody else so that they can get something in exchange. And so the relocation to Egypt was as indentured servants. Oh, yes, they had some favor, but they basically moved everything they had into the land of Goshen because they had nothing. And they needed what they could get. Pastor E.W. Lutzer's timely book is an encouragement to Christians in 2022 where we find ourselves struggling in an economy where some people are really going through some difficulties. You're limited on what you can do, on how far you can go, uh, and now sometimes these, these barriers and these bonds, some of the, the, the enslavements are things in our own heads. We self-govern our tongues, and sometimes we don't even click send on some of our social things. Why? Because we know the consequences. We're afraid that we might be singled out. Lutzer is is causing uh, the Christian community, he's challenging them to respond courageously to this current assault on Christianity. Because one of the things that we end up being quiet about is about Jesus. The only time that Jesus can be loudly proclaimed is as a curse word, because otherwise you're pushing your religion when it comes to the workplace, or you're pushing your religion in the school education arena, or you're even polluting the airways with all this uh, religious garbage. At basic every juncture, God's principles are being supplanted; they're being exchanged. Their alternatives with secular ideas are being given. And so he challenges us in the book he wrote uh, for the Christian church to, to recognize the spin and the deception that is being advanced. Even some of the spin that's been embraced by those within the church. Now why would people in the churches embrace some of this stuff? Have you ever embraced any of the secular thinking? I mean, look at how we end up sending our kids into the public arena and they are taught in schools that there is no God and that everybody came from a primordial soup and a Big Bang. And we just go ahead and say that's normal. Even though we try to tell them, oh, that's just a hoax and stuff. How often do our children get influenced? They hear it year after year after year after year after year. And before long then they'll look at their parents and they'll and they'll look at their parents' bibles and they'll say isn't that a great story god made everything in 6 days that's a neat story isn't santa claus neat too isn't mickey mouse neat too Do you understand what I'm saying? This is what happens where uh, the frog and the kettle, as they've used that in another uh, title of a book, is where when the heat gets turned up and the frog doesn't jump out because he kind of enjoys the warmth before he turns into frog soup. We have all heard of the significance of the economy to those who are in power, especially the cultural phrase that everybody has heard. It's the economy. What's the next word? You all know it. And the reason why they tell us that is that it implies that you would be foolish to ignore it. Because the economy connects with everybody at every age. If a, if a baby can't even get milk, that has a big effect. Especially on the ones trying to feed that baby. But this economy stupid phrase implies that you would be naive not to recognize that if people are starving and uncomfortable and unhappy, that they will inevitably do something to bring about changes that will get them what they want. Why? How do we know this? Because it's the nature of mankind. We're created in God's image, but instead of following God, we set ourselves up as if we're God. And we go after what we want instead of what he wants. God is not a latecomer to these matters. In fact, he is the one who generated all of this stuff for us to be able to work in society. And that's why whenever you turn the word economy, uh, I was just looking at the root word of that. The word economy is a Greek word that means household management. Economics as... Any area of study was touched on by the philosophers in ancient Greece, notice, noticeably Aristotle, but the modern study of economics began more in the 18th century or the 1700s uh, in Scotland and France. People started to think through it a little bit more. And now look at how our economies are affected by the advance of technology. I mean, my goodness, how do, how do, um, how do the, the, the gas stations know what numbers to put up on their signs? And why are they all about the same price? Why isn't there at least somebody selling for 2 not two ten a gallon? You know, and you can, you can see how there's interconnectedness, even to the point of, of globalism, that brings so much of these things uh, together. What does God have to say about any of these things? The value of currency, the, the, the value of your investments, the commodity exchanges, the interest or debt itself. Uh, wages, or some of us would prefer to call that employment, whether you're wealthy or whether you're in poverty, Uh, whether you have the authority to implement a financial system or not, and also the management of the resources that we have been given stewardship over. Uh, And and actually, is there such a thing as ownership? Today, the culture is advancing major, major uh, philosophies. And many people are buying into it. In fact, some of us have bought into it involuntarily. If I were to take a show of hands, how many of you cashed the checks that came in from the government? Wasn't it cool to get that last $300 one? I found myself wondering, why didn't all of my kids get it, you know? It was like, oh, well, we expect this. Do you see what's going on? Even in my own head, is that we begin to think that we deserve that. But the question is, what do we do to get it? Who is paying the bills? For my kids, they know that answer. Do I know that answer? Do you know that answer? And this this comes into play for the scriptures. Today I'll be asking who is paying for it. We'll look briefly at a couple of these topical texts. Uh, There's three biblical concepts that I wanted to bring out. If you have the fourth point, you'll be able to see what they are. The first is the concept of cost. The second is the concept of possessions. The third is the concept of exchange. Uh, And this is is all built out of that one phrase, uh, who pays the bills? And the first thing has to do with the concept of cost. And uh, the cost is trying to figure things out accordingly, is uh, everything that you wish that that you had that you don't have. That's what has a cost. If you already have it, you don't think about its cost. You think about what it takes to be able to get what you don't have. And everything has a price tag. As I, as I held up that gallon of gasoline, everybody knew what the price tag for the gas is. You know, it was two twenty-five dollars what, a couple years ago or, or 18 months ago, and it's going to be over $5 before we blink an eye. Economics have played a part. Now, that there's a lot of reasons why it's the price it is. Now, there's not a divine cost for gasoline you can't open the bible and say the bible says that gas ought to be two dollars a gallon doesn't do that because god didn't set it up that he sets the prices he ended up giving us this thing called free will and he put us into societal settings and so there's several things supply and demand can change the price If there's 10 people that want that one gasoline, then we'll sell it to the one who wants to pay the most. Sold to this man paying 10 bucks. Supply and demand. But you can also find regulations will also cause the price to go up or down. If it's harder to get, harder to develop, if it's harder to transport, if it's harder to do it because so many rules and regulations are put on it, then every one of those things in order to accommodate the rules has a price tag. And when you add up all the extra little costs, guess what the final price is? The cost is a lot higher. Regulations raise prices and also you might say the motivation of the profiteers. In a capitalist system, uh, the reason why people do what they do is often to make a profit. And so what is the motivation? Today you're gonna hear that if somebody wants to make money, that's bad. Because what is good these days is that everybody has to be equal. When you look around, have you found anybody to be equal to you? Is anybody better than you? Is anybody worse? Does God say that everybody has to be identically the same? Well, if he did, then he did a bad job of of giving you a gene pool because a lot of you have genes that don't have the same kind of effects as others that have genes. Uh, You know, When you look at at, at how you're fearfully and wonderfully made, you are made unique. You have a fingerprint that's different. And, And even though you may have some patterns and some parallels, just like firstborns have a lot of things in common and lastborns have a lot of things in common, you can see patterns all the time. But every one of us is unique. And that's why the Bible seems to say and clearly teaches that we are special in God's sight. We play a particular role. And when you think about even the Christianity and the body of Christ, not all of us are thumbs. Aren't you glad we're not all thumbs? Could you go around if we were all thumbs hopping around in the building? No, praise the Lord for pinkies. Praise the Lord for elbows. As I was looking at Sean dealing with his knee, man, praise the Lord for knees that work. You know, can you imagine when something doesn't work right, how it has an effect on the whole body? And God designed us that we would be parts in his body. It's really wonderful when you see this concept of coming, coming together. Now, in, in the society, they're telling us that capitalism versus socialism, the haves and the have-nots, the people who have the capital and the people who wish they had the capital. And so they have all these different things to create a tension and a dissatisfaction individualism versus the state. Who knows best? You can read George Orwell's book, even the one about the, uh, the animal farm. It's, it's an awesome illustration. I've often said that a better storyline might be to go to the zoo. Which animal is the best in the zoo? Which animal is the most privileged in the zoo? It's a trick question. If you're gonna say, oh, it's the one that has the most land to roam in. Or it's the one that has the clearest glass so they can see all the visitors that are coming to check them out? Is it the one that gets fed the most and on time? Is it the one that has the best view to be able to view the whole zoo? I mean, you can watch some of the cartoons, they have some that are hilarious on it. um, that, 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 That when you think about zoo animals, they're all the same. They're all caged up, they're all at the mercy of the zookeepers. And in many ways, they're supposed to be content because they have everything they need, including shots. Whereas if they were out in the wild, then you would say, oh, those poor animals out in the wild. Do you see how we're being conditioned to look at things differently? The cost, the concept of cost is seeing and recognizing what you don't have, but what you may perceive that you need or want. And and when we as human beings are here on this earth, God designed us that we would see these things. And I wanted to encourage you to take notice that there is a difference between what you need and what you want. And what you need is something that that you should have. And God says in in James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, from the Lord of loves. He can supply all your needs. In fact, see if you can finish this verse for me from Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I I shall not be in need. He takes care of me. Now, the difference between needs and wants are clear, uh, but when you applied, uh, when I think about this, uh, do you have a need for transportation? Do you have a need for sustenance? That's bread and water. Do you have a need for protection? In other words, maybe the Second Amendment fits here. Do you have a need for enjoyment? I mean, my goodness, we live near a resort, right? Do we have these needs or are they just wants? Jesus talked about it in in Matthew chapter 6, and I just want to echo his words. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up your treasures, your material, in heaven where neither moth or rust can destroy, where the thieves can't take it. Verse 21, For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. What you value. Now, you're going to end up seeing what's the cost. He says, Your eye is what it lets the light in, and that's what you end up seeing. And it's talking about the 10th commandment there. He says, uh, But if your eye is bad, the whole body is bad. And he goes on to, to say that. Now, I want to jump down to verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says, Do not be afraid or anxious or worried about your life. And then he talks about your needs. Whether you eat and what you drink, and, 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 uh, and uh, nor about your body, what clothes you're going to put on it, uh, what kind of shelter you're going to be in, he says, is not life more than these things? Uh, by the way, you're supposed to nod yes. Okay, Jesus is telling us, don't get so caught up. You're not here just to be able to put food in your stomach and, and not just to have nice clothes on your back. God put you here for a bigger reason. He knows about your needs. In the Lord's Prayer, he says, Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, when you go a little further, he says, Don't be anxious about these things. Verse 28, Even look at the flowers of the field, they, how they grow, they don't toil, they don't spin. Yet your heavenly Father knows that even Solomon is not as beautifully arrayed as they are. God can take care of them. And that's one of the encouragements. In the, in the Ten Commandments, there is a caution for all of us in the tenth commandment. When you're noticing the needs and the costs of everything around you, be careful not to fall into the trap or the quicksand of covetousness. I gotta have what everybody else has. And that's what marketing tends to do. If you look and you, and you see some kind of a store offering something, they're wanting to make you think you have to have it. Okay. And uh, it's pretty effective what they end up doing. In Philippians chapter two verse four, uh, Jesus said, "Look, let each of you look not on, this is Paul saying it. Let, let each of you look not only on his own things, on his own interests, but also take notice of other people's needs too." It's kind of interesting that when you have the mind of Christ, it doesn't move you into selfishness, it moves you into community. And that's why you find in Acts chapter 4 and 5 that when the Christians came and flocked to Christ after the the death, burial, resurrection, ascension, then you had the preaching going forth and the spirit moved in power and they had thousands come to Christ and they had all things in common. They took care of one another. They loved one another. It's really beautiful when you see it. But there is a passage that tells us that sometimes we get myopic. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 29, there was a fellow named Esau. I don't think anybody loves Esau. I don't see anybody named Esau. You know, so Esau was an interesting character. He was one of the twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau was actually the oldest of the two boys. He was born first, came through the birth canal, and there he was. And he had all the rights and privileges of being the oldest because he came out first. But in verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. He was, a, he was a, um, basically a hunter. Esau, in verse 30, said, and Esau said to his dad, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Actually, it's not his dad. It's his little brother. In verse 31, Jacob, the brother, says to his, to his brother Esau, sell me your birthright right now. And Esau says, I'm looking at the cost, the value of my birthright versus my life. And he says, no brainer, give me the stew. Some some translations call it porridge. He says, I'm about to die, verse 32. He says, what is a birthright to me if I'm going to be dead? Verse 33, so Jacob said, swear it to me right now. And they made the deal. So he swore to him and he sold his birthright to Jacob and Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew and he ate and drank and went away for Esau had despised the value of his birthright. Now that's why I'm transitioning to the second point which will be a little briefer, the concept of possessions. What do you actually own? If you have a financial advisor, what do they typically do with you? They want you to give you all the records of every investment you have and what's in your bank account and all this kind of stuff, right? He's trying to get a, a clear understanding of, do you own anything or do you just pretend? Are you really rich or are you poor? Now, by being an American, we don't even know what poverty is. I mean, it's so sad in some places in America that you're, you're feeling poor if you don't have the latest iPhone. You know, but who is really without food? Who is without uh, much? People that are homeless end up a lot of times choosing to be, you know, to, to eliminate some of the stress of keeping a home these days. But the concept of possessions, if you go to Job one twenty one, you get it clearly taught that when you came into this world, how many possessions did you come in with? Okay, you didn't have a U-Haul truck behind you. Now, there might have been things given to you. There might have been a dowry given to you. I mean, think of Jesus. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he didn't have anything. didn't even have a, a set of clothes. They had to put swaddling clothes on him. And then, of course, in a matter of a few days, or maybe it's up to a year, when the wise men showed up, all of a sudden, Jesus was rich. He had gold, he had frankincense, and he had myrrh. He had all this stuff. What a portfolio. His dad, Joseph, had to manage it. But I mean, Jesus was able to be a world traveler. He left the town and went all the way to Egypt and he learned the language down there. I mean, it's pretty amazing all the things that Jesus had. He had left heaven and forsaken it all. He comes to earth and all of a sudden he's taken care of. When you think about it though, verse, 1 Corinthians six 19, it's one I've memorized. He says that, that um, do you not know that your bodies are not your own? They were bought. So the question of possessions is what do you really own? If you start saying you own this and this and this, you're now starting to play on semantics, on the words. The Bible actually says that God has given us certain things about ourselves, but all the material around us, we're just stewards of. It's like it comes in and it passes through. It's almost like the food you eat. How many of you, if you eat a bite of a hamburger, how much do you think that hamburger is gonna stay with you for your life? No, it's going, you're going to get the nutrition out of it, and Lord willing, the rest of it will, will be passed. Now, I'm not trying to be crude. I'm just saying that the things of this earth are, don't, are not what you hang on to. The things of this earth are just, you're just passing through. Sometimes God gives stewardship to some more than others. You know, if you know, the, go back to the parable, and I'm not going to read it all, but to, the one parable, he gave uh, one, uh, one talent, one he gave five, and one he, uh, one, one he gave uh, one, and then two, and then five, and then they ended up doubling it, although the one that had one said, I was so afraid of using it, I didn't want to double it. The, inf- the point about that story is not the multiplication of it, it's the diversity. God did not give everybody the same stuff. So what did he give you? What do you own? You own your name. You own the life that he's given you. You're a steward of that life, um, but he's given you something in it. Uh, Marx and Engels, uh, even though they were godless, they did get this angle right is that you are a producer. You know, if you watch the Matrix movie, they play on that when they show you how you're plugged in in the back of your brain, but you're like a battery that supplies energy to this. To this world. Now, it's, that's just an illustration for those of you that can get into the illustration, but we're all producers. We bring something to this world, some kind of value. Yesterday I met a 10-year-old little girl and she had some health concerns with chromosomes. And, and what can she bring to this world? Man, she brought a lot of love. It's really interesting when you look at it. You might think that you are are cheaper, you're you, you're a second rate, or you don't have a lot to offer. You have you. One of the things we talk about being pro-life is that every soul has value. God has made you to be a little person, to be a big person, to accomplish certain things in this world. Ephesians 2, verse 10, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he has before ordained that we should accomplish. We're here for that reason. Now, I told you there was three principles. You can see the cost. You can see the fact that we don't own that much. But the third one has to do with the, the, the principle of exchange, the concept of exchange, dealing with the payment process. And this lends right to the gospel, which I'll finish with afterwards. But this, how do we make the exchange? Are we supposed to, to deal? I remember my first time going to Africa in 1987, and we went to one of the bazaars. I don't know if any of you have done that. But man, I was a little kid and I had hair back in those days and it was, it was almost like an afro too. It was really cool. Uh, but we went to the bazaar and I was going to get all these gifts for my family members because you all know I have a big family. You know, four sisters, three brothers. You know, It was big families. So I was going to try to get something for them all. And so we go to the bazaar and we had people from Mississippi and all this, folks that had never traveled before. And in the bazaar, they're looking for the price tag. How much does that bag cost? How much does that, that mask cost? my goodness, those guys are ready to barter with you. You know, because they know how to make deals. But we Americans, we want to see the price tag and not make any negotiations whatsoever. And boy, those guys just laugh at us. I remember when we were in China not too long ago, we went to this one special bazaar, a huge building, like six floors full of all this stuff, and you could make deals. It was almost like playing Monopoly. It was fun. Except when you went back to the bus and we all got together, some people got better deals than others. The exchange process is something that most of us don't even want to mess with. We want it to be clean and simple. If somebody asks this price, that's what you're stuck with. We want to make it clear. Now, there are some commodities that are absolutely set that way. But there's some times where we have to do the negotiation to be able to get there. What my point is, is that the exchange has to take place. If you have a need, then how is that need going to be met? you have to give something for it. You have to pay the price. Now that exchange takes place, and and when you catch that, it's pretty fascinating how it all comes together. Uh, This this idea about um, the payment. Is there a need, as I say, for assistance here in order for us to get what we need? Now, if you're a baby, and I'm thinking of my little uh, granddaughter, Charlie, can she get food? Well, if I popped up one of the videos, let me tell you, she can pile it in. I don't know if she's right-handed or left-handed, because they both work. But she still needs somebody to put it on her tray, to put it in on the bowl. A lot of times we do need assistance in this, and that's what's called business or commerce. We often simplify this as a wage. You know, We give this and you give us this, and that's what people do. They, they do this big exchange. So what are you willing to work for? What is the package deal? And when you finally agree to it, that's kind of what you kind of count on. This is the way it's going to be. This is the heart of the commodity. Production is going to be transferred for some kind of value. Henry Ford was pretty masterful on it when I was, was up in, in, um, in Michigan. And I got to see how some of the first places where they created this uh, assembly line and the 40-hour work week. How he could get people to, do, to give this in exchange for that. And, and the big exchange was, is that he was building these little cars that people, nobody had them at the time. And he decided that in order for some people to get them, they'd have to be able to have time to drive them. And so instead of making them work like slaves for all these days of the week, he said, hey, let's limit it to just 40 hours a week, five days, eight hours. And then with the wage that he offered them, they would be able to buy the very thing that they were making. And before long, we had a bunch of people who had cars. And they had time to drive their cars. And guess what ended up happening after that? Everybody wanted to have what they had. And my goodness, it really caught on because there are so many cars in Lewis during these holidays... Boy, it's pretty amazing. We've all figured out what Henry Ford was trying to teach. The concept of exchange, the payment was being made. Now, God is into the business of this. He always was in the Ten Commandments. You can see it for for the second table. The first table is always vertical about you and God, how this relates. But the second table is about you with your neighbor. And if you think about it for a moment, there's an exchange in each one. The first one, which is number five, honor your father and your mother. There's an exchange of care for the two people who were given the charge to take care of you. Do you see? They have, you've been given a responsibility to show respect and honor them, even to their last breath. Then you have, secondly, in number six, which is thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not kill. He says, exchange the honor of each life in society, seeing the value of each soul, regardless of its destiny or its current age. And that's why we're pro-life. That's why we're against euthanasia, because we see the value of every life, and the way that it exchanges is you value every life. You just don't help them kill themselves. You do care for them. You honor them. And number seven, which is marriage. It's the fidelity And uh, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. There is a ch- an exchange of fidelity for one spouse uh, that God has provided you. Genesis 2.24 says, therefore, leave and cleave. Cleave to that spouse and hang on to him for a lifetime. It's not supposed to be traded in for a new model just like your vehicles after 10 years. Number eight, it is interesting that when you look there and see the exchange of respect for possessions, you're not supposed to take what somebody else has. Why? Because they own it. They've been given stewardship over that, and you're not supposed to take it from them unlawfully or deceptively or manipulatively. Number nine is you're supposed to exchange a fidelity of just to justice and, and dealing with truth. In other words, don't bear a false witness. You treasure justice. And when you're put on the stand, you're not going to be deceiving people and manipulating, which is what we saw so much of on, on that uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard stuff. It's interesting when people were trying to tell the truth boy some some of the truth it doesn't set you free it makes you run number 10 exchange of contentment with god for something else Uh, you don't want to make some of these exchanges but god designed it all so that it would work and so there are times though and i'll wrap things up on this point by saying sometimes we don't have what we need to make the exchange you're hungry and you don't have money. What do you do? In our culture now, they justify it. Go ahead and steal. You're hungry, just steal. Now, what, what is the world telling you in that? They're saying that your life is more valuable than God's word. Now, once they set that standard up, then now they don't prosecute stealing anymore. So now you can actually see in broad daylight people going and taking stuff, and they're not even being stopped. They're abandoning some of the things that God has said is the way you keep order and you keep purity. Now, it is true that a lot of times people don't have what they need. What are we supposed to do about that? Jesus taught the disciples the Good Samaritan story. And he said... Hey, when they're asking the question, who's my neighbor? Well, your neighbor is the one that you see that has a need around you and you're supposed to do something about it. And he said, hey, there was this religious professional and there was this Jewish guy and they saw the need and they just walked around him and they kept going and they said, phooey. But then there was this other fellow and he happened to notice the same guy who who was near death, the Samaritan, and he comes to the guy who has a need and he says, let me help. He didn't have to make a deal. When he saw a need... He sought to meet that need. And that's what love does. And that's what Jesus was teaching in the Good Samaritan story. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I wrap up this sermon about economics because I don't want you to fall into the trap that we look for the government to take over and meet all of our needs. Because if you look to the government, they will only meet your needs for a short period of time. It's just like drunkenness will give you the fix that you need if you are trying to get a buzz or whatever it is. I don't know what it feels like. At least I don't think I do. She says no. Uh, (laughs) I've never desired to find out. But some people will go after it. And they'll try to go and get it again. Just like drugs, they go and get more drugs. Why? Because they want to get more of what they had before and they lost it. And so they get addicted to it and they keep pursuing it. And they become enslaved to it. When you look at this, the government ends up doing the same kind of thing. That if they give you something that you didn't work for, if the the deal is that they're going to give you something for free, guess what the deal is? You are their servant. You do what they tell you to do in exchange for them giving you what they think you need. Be careful, Christians. This is why we're not to just be like the frog in the kettle and just accept everything going on. Where do you stand up? When do men become men and just say, we're not going to just go along with it? How many things have we already gone along with because we take Scripture that says, as much as is possible, let's live at peace with everyone. Don't be misunderstood. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Our trust is not in government. Our trust is in God. We say it on the money as a reminder. In God we trust. And yet a lot of times even Christians don't trust God. We trust our own ability to work it together for good. I wrap up with this, this conclusion point, And that is the great exchange. There was a need that we had that we could not meet. And it wasn't hunger. And it wasn't thirst. And it wasn't riches. And it really wasn't even long life. It was forgiveness. We wanted a peace. All of us are longing for a peace. The scripture says creation groans with all the troubles that are around us. Every time you wake up, you might see a beautiful sunny day, and you might see this and this. And I love it when we can spot some of God's grace. But it doesn't take long before you have that something else. Somebody's angry. Somebody's cutting you off. The bills don't add up. Oh, I made a mistake. I forgot. Oh, I forgot. You know what I mean. Whatever it is that's holding you back, we don't have the ability to have that peace that passes understanding because we know that we are sinners. According to the text in Matthew, it says that, that, um, that broad is the way in Matthew 7, verses 10 through 14. Um, Jesus was explaining there in the Sermon on the Mount, if somebody asks for a fish, You won't get a serpent, you won't get a snake. He says, if you then who are evil know, if you're secular, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give you good things for those who ask of him? He'll meet your needs. So whatever you wish that others would do for you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is how we care for one another, because God has blessed you with life, that you can meet the needs around others, and you can even point them to the one who can meet their final need. Enter by the narrow gate, for for the gate is wide and, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And there are many that enter there, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And that is talking about eternal life. Eternal life. My favorite verse in Mark 8, wrap it up with this. You have a soul. What will you give in exchange for that soul being at peace with God? Would you give $100? Would you give 1000 Would you take your wallet out and put it in the offering box today as an exchange? I gave my all to Jesus today, all that was in my pocket. Would that be a fair exchange? When you realize, Romans 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is searching you out. You can try to hide. You can try to run. But be sure your sin will find you out. The wrath of the holy God is going to be poured out upon your sin, big or little. You won't escape it. But in Romans 12, we've been preaching on it a lot. It said that the reason he hasn't sought you out already is because of this thing called mercy. And he says, I beg of you, brothers and sisters, by God's mercy, because God has not given you what you deserve. He hasn't given you the exchange that he is going to exact because the soul that sins will surely die and he will by no means clear the guilty, Exodus 34, 7. When God has extended mercy to us, he's given us time. Here we are today we may be living in difficult times in the latter days, but here we are, and the wrath of God has been held back. And because it's been held back, he says, brothers, make the exchange of your life in the now time. Not just what's in your wallet. All of you. Why? Because of the great exchange he made. And if you go back to the Isaiah 53, for all we like sheep had gone astray, all of us had gone our own way. We've all pursued the paths that seemed bright in our own eyes. We've all been doing it. But God did an exchange while we were yet in sin. He took our sin upon him. By His stripes, we are healed. God laid on him the iniquity of us all, while He went to Calvary. I point you to the cross. It's empty. We have the crown of thorns still on top of it, but we point to an empty cross because Jesus paid it all. The great exchange has already been done. When he said, die in Greek, that means, or Aramaic, it means it is paid in full. The great exchange has already happened. You don't have to wait for it. You don't have to turn on your phone and say, I wonder what the stock market looks like. Oh, I wonder what my investments are. No. You already have been given a gift. He's imputed something to your bank account that won't be taken away. It's called righteousness. Romans chapter 4, you can read about it more. Brothers and sisters, do you have that imputed righteousness? Jesus already secured it. How does it get to your heart? I can tell you individually and personally that it is not something that you have to do. You don't have to climb a ladder. You don't have to pay all of your money to get it. You don't even have to show up at church all the time. It pains me to say that. You need to look in his wonderful face. What must I do to be saved? The Philippian jailer asked Paul. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you are saved. Call upon him, for he cares for you. Let us pray. Lord, in the quietness of this moment, as the musicians come on up, Lord, we are very much aware that the exchange is something that has to happen in our lives. Lord, as as I was talking with Renee about her mom, the great comfort we have is that we know that she's testified to what you've already started in her heart. We know from Paul's words that if you've begun the work of salvation, you will finish it and complete it until the day of Christ. Lord, we are so grateful that the covenant that you've entered into is that you won't change the terms of this, that you have said we are children of the covenant, and you call us to be covenant keepers, even though you know that we're covenant breakers. But while we were yet dead in sins and trespasses, you died for us. You went to Calvary's cross And the wrath of God that's to be poured out upon us was poured out upon you. And the agony and the turmoil, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a testimony of how miserable it is to be under God's wrath. But Lord, we realize that when when you died and when you rose again, the words on your lips to the saints is peace I give. It's echoed by the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 that there is a peace with God now through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's echoed again in chapter 8 that there is no more condemnation, no more wrath from God being poured on us. The exchange has taken place. Lord, if there's someone in this room today who just has heard these words but has never experienced the forgiveness that is in Christ, I pray that they could pray after me these words in their hearts. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I'm on the Broadway that leads to hell. I know that the wrath of God, of the Holy God, is is due upon me, but I see the empty cross and I recognize that God the Son loved me so much that he came to this world. He emptied himself. He exchanged everything that he had to take on a life like we have. And then he went to the cross to actually pay the price that's due to my sin for the cost of my sin is death. But the gift of God for me is eternal life that he gives imputed righteousness. Lord, forgive my sin and set me on that path of righteousness to live it out. Lord, I thank you for this good news that's come into this building today. Regardless of the economy, we know that we would prefer capitalism over socialism. We would prefer people to not be greedy and people to be loving and kind. But Lord, we know Christianity's flourishes everywhere because it's the truth that we really need forgiveness even more than we need bread and water we thank you for this great salvation in Christ in Jesus name amen